Today's read, Asada, an autobiography written by Asada Shakur. Chapter 19. I was transferred on April 8, 1978 to the maximum security prison for women in Alderson, West Virginia, the federal facility designed to hold the most dangerous women in the country. I had been convicted of no federal crime, but under the Interstate Compact Agreement, any prisoner can be shipped like cargo to any jail in U.S. territory, including the Virgin Islands, miles away from family, friends, and lawyers. Through the device of this agreement, Sunjata had been transferred to Marion Prison in Illinois, the federal prison that was the most brutal concentration camp in the country. Alderson was in the middle of the West Virginia mountains, and it seemed as if the mountains formed an impenetrable barrier between the prison and the rest of the world. It had no airport, and to reach it, days of travel were necessary. The trip to Alderson was so expensive and difficult that most of the women received family visits only once or twice a year. I was housed in the maximum security unit, MSU, called Davis Hall. It was surrounded by an electronic fence topped by barbed wire, which in turn was covered by concertina wire, a razor-sharp type of wire that had been outlawed by the Geneva Convention. It was a prison within a prison. This place had a stillness to it like some kind of bizarre death row. Everything was sterile and dead. There were three major groups in MSU. The Nazis, the quote-unquote nigger lovers, and me. I was the only black woman in the unit with the exception of one other who left almost immediately after I arrived. The Nazis had been sent to Alderson from a prison in California where they had been accused of setting inmates on fire. They were members of the Aryan Sisterhood, the female wing of the Aryan Brotherhood, a white racist group that operates in California prisons and is well known for its attacks on black prisoners. Hooked up with the Nazis were the Manson family women, Sandra Good and Linda Squeaky Fromm. Sandra had been sentenced to 15 years for threatening the lives of business executives and government officials. And Fromm was serving a life sentence for attempting to kill President Gerald Ford. They were like the Bobsy twins and clear out of their minds. They called themselves Red and Blue. Every day, Red wore red from head to toe, and blue wore blue. They were so fanatic in their devotion to Charles Manson that they wrote to him every day, informing him about everything that happened at MSU. They waited for his orders, and you can be sure that if he told them to kill someone, 
they would die trying to do it. Also hooked up with the Nazis were the hillbilly prisoners, an obese sow who never bathed and walked around barefoot and a tobacco-chewing butch who acted like she was in the Confederate Army. There was one independent Nazi who had fallen out with the others. She sported a huge swastika embroidered on her jeans. Luckily, Rita Brown, a white revolutionary from the George Jackson Brigade, a group based on the West Coast, was among the four or five quote-unquote nigger lovers. She was a feminist and a lesbian and helped me to better understand many issues in the white women's liberation movement. Unlike Jane Alpert, whom I had met in the federal prison in New York and whom I couldn't stand either personally or politically, Rita did not separate the oppression of women from the racism and classism of U.S. society. We agreed that sexism, like racism, was generated by capitalist, imperialist governments and that women would never be liberated as long as the institutions that controlled our lives existed. I respected Rita because she really practiced sisterhood and wasn't just one of those big mouths who go on and on about men. I'm sure that a lot of prison officials thought I'd never leave the place alive. It was the perfect setup for a setup, and I dealt with the situation seriously. I didn't look for trouble, but I let the Nazis know that I was ready to defend myself at any time and that if they wanted ass, like they say in prison, they would have to bring ass. I made it clear to them that I hated them as much as they hated me and that if anybody's mother had to cry, it would be theirs, not Mrs. Johnson. After a few run-ins, the Nazis stayed out of my way. After I had been at Alderson for a while, we learned that the MSU would be closed down because it had been declared unconstitutional. A phase-out stratification program was implemented that enabled those in MSU to leave it during the day and to participate in the same activities permitted those in the general population. I got a job working on the general mechanics crew, was allowed recreation, attended classes, and was able to eat and visit with the other women in general population. Many of the sisters were black and poor and from D.C., where every crime is a violation of a federal statute. They were beautiful sisters, serving outrageous sentences for minor offenses. Similar to the situation that existed at the federal prison in New York, some women could not afford to buy cigarettes without foregoing necessities while others had money, contacts, wore fur coats, and lived as if they were in a different prison. That small group of women had been convicted of drug trafficking. Rumor had it that they performed the same services in prison as they had on the street, only now they worked for the guards. One day, as I was returning to Davis Hall, a middle-aged woman with salt and pepper hair caught my eye. She had a dignified schoolteacher look. Something drove me towards her. As I searched her face, I could see that she was searching mine. Our eyes locked in a questioning gaze. Lolita? I ventured. Asada? She responded. And there, in the middle of those Alderson prison grounds, we hugged and kissed each other. 
for me, this was one of the greatest honors of my life. Lolita LeBron was was one of the most respected political prisoners in the world ever since I had first learned about her courageous struggle for the independence of Puerto Rico. I had read everything I could find that had been written about her. She had spent a quarter of a century behind bars and had refused parole unless her comrades were also freed. After all those years, she had remained strong, unbent, and unbroken, still dedicated to the independence of Puerto Rico and the liberation of her people. She deserved more respect than anyone could possibly give her, and I could not do enough to demonstrate my respect. In our subsequent meetings, I must have been quite a pain in her neck, falling all over myself to carry her tray, to get a chair for her, or to do whatever I could do for her. Lolita had been through hell in prison, yet she was amazingly calm and extremely kind. She had suffered years of isolation in Davis Hall, in addition to years of political and personal isolation. Until the upsurge of the movement for Puerto Rican independence in the late 1960s, she had received very little support. Years had gone by without a visit. For years, she had been cut off from her country, her culture, her family, and had not been able to speak her own language. Her only daughter had died while she was in prison. I supported Lolita 100%, but there was one thing about which we did not agree. At the time we met, Lolita was somewhat anti-communist and anti-socialist. She was extremely religious and, I think, believed that religion and socialism were two opposing forces, that socialists and communists were completely opposed to religion and religious freedom. After the resurgence of the Puerto Rican independence movement, Lolita was visited by all kinds of people. Some were pseudo-revolutionary robots who attacked her for her religious beliefs telling her that to be a revolutionary, she had to give up her belief in God. It apparently had never occurred to those fools that Lolita was more revolutionary than they could ever be, and that her religion had helped her to remain strong and committed all those years. I was infuriated by their crass, misguided arrogance. I had become close friends with a Catholic nun, Mary Alice Wilder Alderson, who introduced me to liberation theology. I had read some articles by Camillo Torres, the revolutionary priest, and I knew that there were a lot of revolutionary priests and nuns in Latin America. But I didn't know too much about liberation theology. I did know that Jesus had driven the money changers out of the temples and said that the meek would inherit the earth and a lot of other things that were directly opposed to capitalism. He had told the rich to give away their wealth and said that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Matthew 19 verse 24 I knew a little bit but 
I had too much respect for Lolita to open my mouth carelessly. I decided to study liberation theology so that I could have an intelligent conversation with her. I never got around to it, though. The maximum security unit closed, and I was shipped back to New Jersey. Lolita is free now, and she is no longer isolated from what is going on in her part of the world or in her church. I know that wherever she is, she is praying and struggling for her people.